Chapter Twelve of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Twelve: How Alan Learned More Than He Could Teach. And now there came a time of stir and bustle of furbishing of arms and clang of hammer from all the southland counties fast spread the tidings from thorpe to thorpe and from castle to castle that the old game was afoot once more and the lions and lilies to be in the field with the early spring great news this for that fierce old country whose trade for a generation had been war her exports archers and her imports prisoners for six years her sons had chafed under an unwanted peace now they flew to their arms as to their birthright. The old soldiers of Cressy, of Nogent, and of Poitiers were glad to think that they might hear the war-trumpet once more, and gladder still were the hot youth who had chafed for years under the martial tales of their sires. To pierce the great mountains of the south, to fight the tamers of the fiery moors, to follow the greatest captain of the age, to find sunny cornfields and vineyards, when the marches of Picardy and Normandy were as rare and bleak as the Jedborough forests, here was a golden prospect for a race of warriors. From sea to sea there was stringing of bows in the cottage, and clang of steel in the castle. Nor did it take long for every stronghold to pour forth its cavalry, and every hamlet its footmen. Through the late autumn and the early winter, every road and country lane resounded with nacre and trumpet, with the neigh of the war-horse and the clatter of marching men. From the Reekin in the Welsh marches to the Cotswolds in the west, or Butzer in the south, there was no hilltop from which the peasant might not have seen the bright shimmer of arms, the toss and flutter of plume and of pencil. From bypath, from woodland clearing, or from winding moorside track, these little rivulets of steel united in the larger roads to form a broader stream, growing ever fuller and larger as it approached the nearest or most commodious seaport. And there all day, and day after day, there was bustle and crowding and labour, while the great ships loaded up, and one after the other spread their white pinions, and darted off to the open sea, amid the clash of cymbals and rolling of drums and lusty shouts of those who went and of those who waited from orwell to the dart there was no port which did not send forth its little fleet gay with streamer and bunting as for a joyous festival thus in the season of the waning days the might of england put forth onto the waters in the ancient and populous county of hampshire there was no lack of leaders or of soldiers for a service which promised either honour or profit. In the north the Saracen's head of the Brocas and the scarlet fish of the de Roche were waving over a strong body of archers from Holt, Woolmer, and Harewood forests. De Boerhunt was up in the east, and Sir John de Montague in the west. Sir Luke de Poigne, Sir Thomas West, Sir Maurice de Bruin, Sir Arthur Lipscomb, Sir Walter Ramsay, and stout Sir Oliver Butsworn were all marching south with levies from Andover, Alsford, Odium, and Winchester, while from Sussex came Sir John Clinton, Sir Thomas Chain, and Sir John Falsley, with a troop of picked men-at-arms, making for their port at Southampton. Greatest of all the musters, however, was that of Twynham Castle, for the name and the fame of Sir Nigel Loring drew towards him the keenest and boldest spirits, 
all eager to serve under so valiant a leader. Archers from the new forest, and the forest of beer, billmen from the peasant country, which is watered by the Stour, the Avon, and the Itchen, young cavaliers from the ancient Hampshire houses, all were pushing for Christchurch to take service under the banner of the five scarlet roses. And now, could Sir Nigel have shown the bachelle of land which the laws of rank required, he might well have cut his forked pennon into a square banner, and taken such a following into the field as would have supported the dignity of a banneret. But poverty was heavy upon him. His land was scant, his coffers empty, and the very castle which covered him the holding of another. Sore was his heart when he saw rare bowmen and war-hardened spearmen turned away from his gates for the lack of the money which might equip and pay them. Yet the letter which Aylward had brought him gave him powers which he was not slow to use. In it Sir Claude Latour, the Gascon lieutenant of the White Company, assured him that there remained in his keeping enough to fit out a hundred archers and twenty men-at-arms, which, joined to the three hundred veteran companions already in France, would make a force which any leader might be proud to command. Carefully and sagaciously the veteran knight chose out his men from the swarm of volunteers. Many an anxious consultation he held with Black Simon, Sam Aylward, and other of his more experienced followers, as to who should come and who should stay. By All Saints' Day, however, ere the last leaves had fluttered to earth in the Wilverley and Holmesley glades, he had filled up his full numbers, and mustered under his banner as stout a following of Hampshire foresters as ever twanged their war-bows. Twenty men-at-arms, too, well mounted and equipped, formed the cavalry of the party, while young Peter Turlake of Fareham, and Walter Ford of Botley, the martial sons of martial sires, came at their own cost to wait upon Sir Nigel, and to share with Alan the duties of his squireship. Yet even after the enrolment there was much to be done ere the party could proceed upon its way. For armour, swords, and lances there was no need to take much forethought, for they were to be had both better and cheaper in Bordeaux than in England. With the longbow, however, it was different. Eustaves indeed might be got in Spain, but it was well to take enough and to spare with them. Then three spare cords should be carried for each bow, with a great store of arrowheads, besides the brigandines of chain-mail, the wadded steel caps, and the brassarts or arm-guards, which were the proper equipment of the archer. Above all, the women for miles round were hard at work, cutting the white surcoats, which were the badge of the company, and adorning them with the red lion of St. George upon the centre of the breast. When all was completed, and the muster called in the castle-yard, the oldest soldier of the French wars was fain to confess that he had never looked upon a better equipped or more warlike body of men, from the old knight with his silk jupon sitting his great black war-horse in the front of them, to Hordle John, the giant recruit, who leaned carelessly upon a huge black bow-stave in the rear. Of the six score, fully half had seen service before, while a fair sprinkling were men who had followed the wars all their lives, and had a hand in those battles which had made the whole world ring with the fame and the wonder of the island infantry. Six long weeks were taken in these preparations, and it was close on Martinmas ere all was ready for a start. Nigh two months had Alan Edrickson been in Castle Twynham, months which were fated to turn the whole current of his life, 
to divert it from that dark and lonely bourne towards which it tended, and to guide it into freer and more sunlit channels. Already he had learned to bless his father for that wise provision which had made him seek to know the world ere he had ventured to renounce it. For it was a different place from that which he had pictured, very different from that which he had heard described when the master of the novices held forth to his charges upon the ravening wolves who lurked for them beyond the peaceful folds of Bewley. There was cruelty in it, doubtless, and lust, and sin, and sorrow. But were there not virtues to atone, robust, positive virtues, which did not shrink from temptation, which held their own in all the rough blasts of the workaday world? How colourless, by contrast, appeared the sinlessness which came from inability to sin, the conquest which was attained by flying away from the enemy! Monk-bred as he was, Alan had native shrewdness, and a mind which was young enough to form new conclusions, and to outgrow old ones. He could not fail to see that the men with whom he was thrown into contact, rough-tongued, fierce and quarrelsome as they were, were yet of deeper nature, and of more service in the world, than the ox-eyed brethren who rose and ate and slept from year's end to year's end in their own narrow, stagnant circle of existence. Abbot Burghersh was a good man, but how was he better than this kindly knight, who lived as simple a life, held as lofty and inflexible an ideal of duty, and did with all his fearless heart whatever came to his hand to do? In turning from the service of the one to that of the other, Alan could not feel that he was lowering his aims in life. True that his gentle and thoughtful nature recoiled from the grim work of war, yet in those days of martial orders and militant brotherhoods there was no gulf fixed betwixt the priest and the soldier. The man of God and the man of the sword might, without scandal, be united in the same individual. Why, then, should he, a mere clerk, have scruples when so fair a chance lay in his way of carrying out the spirit as well as the letter of his father's provision? Much struggle it cost him, anxious spirit-questionings and midnight prayings, with many a doubt and a misgiving. But the issue was that, ere he had been three days in Castle Twynham, he had taken service under Sir Nigel, and had accepted horse and harness, the same to be paid for out of his share of the profits of the expedition. Henceforth, for seven hours a day, he strove in the tilt-yard to qualify himself to be a worthy squire to so worthy a knight. Young, supple, and active, with all the pent energies from years of pure and healthy living, it was not long before he could manage his horse and his weapon well enough to earn an approving nod from critical men-at-arms, or to hold his own against Turlake and Ford, his fellow-servitors. But were there no other considerations which swayed him from the cloisters towards the world? So complex is the human spirit that it can itself scarce discern the deep springs which impel it to action. Yet to Alan had been opened now a side of life of which he had been as innocent as a child, but one which was of such deep import that it could not fail to influence him in choosing his path. A woman, in monkish precepts, had been the embodiment and concentration of what was dangerous and evil, a focus whence spread all that was to be dreaded and avoided, 
so defiling was their presence that a true cistercian might not raise his eyes to their face or touch their finger-tips unban of church and fear of deadly sin yet here day after day for an hour after nones and for an hour before vespers he found himself in close communion with three maidens all young all fair and all therefore doubly dangerous from the monkish standpoint yet he found that in their presence he was conscious of a quick sympathy a pleasant ease a ready response to all that was most gentle and best in himself which filled his soul with a vague and new-found joy and yet the lady maud loring was no easy pupil to handle an older and more world-wise man might have been puzzled by her varying moods her sudden prejudices her quick resentment at all constraint and authority did a subject interest her was there space in it for either romance or imagination she would fly through it with her subtle active mind leaving her two fellow-students and even her teacher toiling behind her on the other hand were there dull patience needed with steady toil and strain of memory no single fact could by any driving be fixed in her mind Alan might talk to her of the stories of old gods and heroes of gallant deeds and lofty aims or he might hold forth upon moon and stars and let his fancy wander over the hidden secrets of the universe and he would have had a rapt listener with flushed cheeks and eloquent eyes who could repeat after him the very words which had fallen from his lips but when it came to almagest and astrolabe and counting off figures and reckoning of epicycles away would go her thoughts to horse and hound and a vacant eye and a listless face would warn the teacher that he had lost his hold upon his scholar then he had but to bring out the old romance book from the priory with befingered cover of sheepskin and gold letters upon a purpling ground to entice her wayward mind back to the paths of learning at times too when the wild fit was upon her she would break into pertness and rebel openly against alan's gentle firmness yet he would jog quietly on with his teachings taking no heed to her mutiny until suddenly she would be conquered by his patience and break into self-revilings a hundred times stronger than her fault demanded it chanced however that on one of these mornings when the evil mood was upon her agatha the young tire-woman thinking to please her mistress began also to toss her head and make tart rejoinder to the teacher's questions in an instant lady maud had turned upon her two blazing eyes and a face which was blanched with anger you would dare said she you would dare the frightened tire-woman tried to excuse herself but my fair lady she stammered what have i done i have said no more than i heard you would dare repeated the lady in a choking voice you a graceless baggage a foolish lack-brain with no thought above the hemming of shifts and he so kindly and handy and long-suffering you would ha you may well flee the room she had spoken with a rising voice and a clasping and opening of her long white fingers so that it was no marvel that ere the speech was over the skirts of agatha were whisking round the door and the click of her sobs be heard dying swiftly away down the corridor alan stared open-eyed at this tigress who had sprung so suddenly to his rescue there is no need for such anger he said mildly the maid's words have done me no scathe it is you yourself who have erred i know it she cried 
I am a most wicked woman, but it is bad enough that one should misuse you. Maf, I will see that there is not a second one. Nay, nay, no one has misused me, he answered, but the fault lies in your hot and bitter words. You have called her a baggage and a lackbrain, and I know not what. And you are he who taught me to speak the truth, she cried. Now I have spoken it, and yet I cannot please you. Lack-brain she is, and lack-brain I shall call her. Such was a sample of the sudden janglings which marred the peace of that little class. As the weeks passed, however, they became fewer and less violent, as Alan's firm and constant nature gained sway and influence over the Lady Maud. And yet, sooth to say, there were times when he had to ask himself whether it was not the Lady Maud who was gaining sway and influence over him. If she were changing, so was he. In drawing her up from the world, he was day by day being himself dragged down towards it. In vain he strove and reasoned with himself as to the madness of letting his mind rest upon Sir Nigel's daughter. What was he? A younger son, a penniless clerk, a squire unable to pay for his own harness, that he should dare to raise his eyes to the fairest maid in Hampshire. So spake reason, but, in spite of all, her voice was ever in his ears, and her image in his heart. Stronger than reason, stronger than cloister teachings, stronger than all that might hold him back, was that old, old tyrant who will brook no rival in the kingdom of youth. And yet it was a surprise and a shock to himself to find how deeply she had entered into his life, how completely those vague ambitions and yearnings which had filled his spiritual nature centred themselves now upon this thing of earth. He had scarce dared to face the change which had come upon him when a few sudden chance words showed it all up hard and clear, like a lightning flash in the darkness. He had ridden over to Poole one November day with his fellow squire Peter Turlake in quest of certain eustaves from Watt Swathling, the Dorsetshire armourer. The day for their departure had almost come, and the two youths spurred it over the lonely downs at the top of their speed on their homeward course, for evening had fallen, and there was much to be done. Peter was a hard, wiry, brown-faced, country-bred lad, who looked on the coming war as the schoolboy looks on his holidays. This day, however, he had been sombre and mute, with scarce a word a mile to bestow upon his comrade. "'Tell me, Alan Edrickson,' he broke out suddenly, as they clattered along the winding track which leads over the Bournemouth hills. "'Has it not seemed to you that of late the Lady Maud is paler and more silent than is her wont?' "'It may be so,' the other answered shortly. "'And would sit rather distraught by her aureole than ride gaily to the chase as of old. "'Methinks, Alan, it is this learning which you have taught her that has taken all the life and sap from her. "'It is more than she can master.' like a heavy spear to a light rider. Her lady mother has so ordered it, said Alan. By our lady, and without in disrespect, quoth Telake, it is in my mind that her lady mother is more fitted to lead a company to a storming than to have the upbringing of this tender and milk-white maid. Hark ye, lad, Alan, to what I have never told man or woman yet. I love the fair lady Maud, and would give the last drop of my heart's blood to serve her. He spoke with a gasping voice, and his face flushed crimson in the moonlight. 
Alan said nothing, but his heart seemed to have turned to a lump of ice in his bosom. "'My father has broad acres,' the other continued, "'from Fairham Creek to the slope of the Portsdown Hill. There is filling of granges, hewing of wood, malting of grain, and herding of sheep as much as heart could wish, and I the only son. Sure am I that Sir Nigel would be blithe at such a match.' "'But how of the lady?' asked Alan, with dry lips. "'Ah, lad, there lies my trouble. "'It is a toss of the head and a droop of the eyes "'if I say one word of what is in my mind. "'Twere as easy to woo the snow-dame "'that we shaped last winter in our castle-yard. "'I did but ask her yesternight for her green veil "'that I might bear it as a token or lambkin upon my helm. "'But she flashed out at me that she kept it for a better man, "'and then, all in a breath, asked pardon "'for that she had spoke so rudely.' yet she would not take back the words either, nor would she grant the veil. Has it seemed to thee, Alan, that she loves any one? Nay, I cannot say, said Alan, with a wild throb of sudden hope in his heart. I have thought so, and yet I cannot name the man. Indeed, save myself and Walter Ford, and you, who are half a clerk, and Father Christopher of the Priory, and Bertrand the Page, who is there whom she sees?' "'I cannot tell,' quoth Alan shortly, and the two squires rode on again, each intent upon his own thoughts. Next day, at morning lesson, the teacher observed that his pupil was indeed looking pale and jaded, with listless eye and a weary manner. He was heavy-hearted to note the grievous change in her. "'Your mistress, I fear, is ill, Agatha,' he said to the tire-woman, when the Lady Maud had sought her chamber. "'The maid,' looked slant at him with laughing eyes. "'It's not an illness that kills,' quoth she. "'Pray God not!' he cried. "'But tell me, Agatha, what is it that ails her?' "'Methinks that I could lay my hand upon another who is smitten with the same trouble,' said she, with the same sidelong look. "'Canst not give a name to it, and thou so skilled in leechcraft? "'Nay, save that she seems a-weary.' "'Well, bethink you that it is but three days ere you will all be gone, "'and T Castle Twynham be as dull as the Priory. "'Is there not enough there to cloud a lady's brow?' "'In sooth, yes,' he answered. "'I had forgot that she is about to lose her father.' "'Her father?' cried the tire-woman, with a little trill of laughter. "'Oh, simple, simple!' "'And she was off down the passage like an arrow from a bow, "'while Alan stood gazing after her. "'betwixt hope and doubt, scarce daring to put faith in the meaning "'which seemed to underlie her words. End of chapter 12